Hello, listeners. This is Brian Moriarty, co-host of both Nerds on History and Nerds on Film. If you like what you've been listening to on tonight's show, then listen to Nerds on Film, because guess what? We use swear words, a lot of them. And we also talk about movies, too. But it's fun, and I think you'll like it. Thank you. Sound check. Sound check. Check, check. one, two. Check, 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 two. Testing. One, two. Test, test. Okay. Awesome. So, uh, hey, Eric, what do you want to talk about this week? We haven't done cannibalism. Whoa. Ooh. <laughs> Actually, yeah. that sounds intriguing. Whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. I thought we were going to talk about unnecessary sequels, guys. Remember that? We talked about that. Yeah. Just now. I think that's unnecessary. Let's talk about cannibalism instead. Yeah. Cannibalism sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out. What's eating him? Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Hey, hey. Brian. Yes, sir. How you doing? I'm good. Excellent. It's been a busy couple weeks, I think. It has. Yeah, I'm ramping up for the holidays. It's been exciting. It's been yeah, a good it does. time. It's been very exciting for us, I think, as, as for Nerdonomy in general. Yeah. yeah. All the podcasts are really, really taking off, and it's been tremendous to see the support that's come on in from, from all of our listeners, from all the great reviews that we've had in uh, iTunes Store, uh, from the participation that we've had on Facebook, and... I know we've kind of brought this up before, and I, I just I want to keep going with it because it's so much fun when we have our listeners interact with us. Absolutely. And I thought, actually, we could just kind of start the episode off real quick, just a little more recognition and to bring up some great points that our listeners have been bringing up to us on Facebook. No, absolutely. We've had tremendous response within a day of our education podcast going on on the air. and It really seemed to strike a chord with people. Absolutely. People yeah. really found something to, to relate to and have been very vocal with it. Uh, like Kathy, uh, one of our followers on Facebook. Are they followers on Facebook? Because you like something, you don't follow it. We're going to call them followers. Okay, so Kathy had this really great point that she wanted to bring up that she mess- messaged to us all about the role of libraries and self-education in, as a tradition in the American education system. And she makes a really good point that libraries, different than how they were originally set up, which was you know a depository of books... Private collections usually that were donated, like the first library collection to be donated by Thomas Jefferson's estate. Uh, Those were intended for a very specific group. It wasn't really designed for people to just be able to come on in and browse through necessarily. They were meant almost as conservatories than they were anything else. Right, and I feel like that also put much more emphasis on the role of the librarian, right? Because their job was to be this facilitator of knowledge. They had to kind of know if someone wanted to educate themselves, they had to kind of be the one to put them in the, on the right direction. I well, imagine. yeah, because eventually libraries would take on much more popularity and they would open up and be available to larger groups of people where they could, you know, take these books and use them as a place of, of self-learning and knowledge and education. And we have continued that tradition up into the modern time. Uh, I feel like libraries, now that the advent of the internet, though, much to the point that Kathy made in her in her message to us, uh, it kind of depleted from their their popularity almost now that we can just go online on our smartphones or on our computers and access information that previously we actually had to make a little bit more effort to go and get in front of. Yeah. And with that, all of the type of information that can just be created randomly, quickly, without any necessarily truth behind it and thrown up on the internet and then be touted as being true kind of, again, takes away a little bit from that from the importance of those libraries. But I still feel like the tradition of self-education, you know, is important. And it's mm-hmm. one that we really need to recognize. Uh, again, one last point that she made, which I thought was fantastic, is that to many of us, we see it as an opportunity to not necessarily have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to go to an Ivy League school to be considered accredited and knowledgeable. You know, for example, Abraham Lincoln. Well, okay. Kathy, again, makes this point. Abraham Lincoln goes ahead locks himself up in his log cabin with as many books as possible, teaches himself how to how to essentially be literate and read. And yes, he does go and pursue education later when he goes to law school, but he took that initiative and he took an opportunity that wasn't necessarily given to him and took advantage of self-learning yeah. and became president, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. Yeah, I could give another good example too is Thomas Edison. You know, there's lots of talk about how ethical he was as an inventor, but he nevertheless revolutionized and quite literally electrified America. Um... <laughs> it wasn't really a joke, but okay. But uh, And he was self-educated. He didn't have any formal scientific training. He mostly spent his money working on a, on a train car, and the money he made from that was to buying trinkets and experiments and what have you. So yeah. it, it goes to show that self-education has a lot of power, a lot of promise to it. And look in the modern age. You know, here we have Steve Jobs and uh, uh, Bill Gates. Two college dropouts. Two college dropouts became extraordinarily successful uh, people in the, in the industry, in, mm-hmm. in the computer industry. So, 
And it actually kind of caters to another point that was made by one of our listeners, uh, a young man named Kobe. And Kobe wrote this really fascinating blog all about education from the perspective of somebody who's still in high school. And from someone who feels lacking in what education can provide and who's had to make up for it, who's had to pretty much say, okay, well, if I really want to pursue what I want to do, I have to do it on my own time and I'm going to have to dedicate extra time to doing that well in addition to memorizing a lot of facts that don't necessarily apply to where I want to go in life and not spending as much time focusing on what I want to do as an individual and nurturing that and helping that grow, but rather looking at me as a test score or as an aspect of standardized testing yeah, as financing money essentially for school. Right. And it goes back to what Heather was saying last week too, that we're less about teaching people skills for how to be productive adults. It's more about how do we teach people to pass this test to make this standard the government has imposed on those schools. And you know, folks, if you want to uh, read it, please, by all means, do so. Just go to our Facebook page. It's a comment that was left on our page with a link on it. Anyone can access it. And yeah. do check it out. It's actually very, very insightful. And I look forward to seeing uh, where his education is going to develop and further and, and what he's going to contribute to society. Because he has some really, really fantastic views and ideas for someone uh, as young as he. Absolutely. Kobe, shoot us an email, please, if you could. We'd love to keep the correspondence open with you. And just thank you again. It was really cool to see someone from such a young age being able to connect with our podcast yeah. and... Um, Get something out of it. It was great. Yeah. Well, sir, I guess we should go ahead and jump on into this. Yeah, but before we do that, you know, we've had our guests here sitting here just kind of like quietly playing on his iPhone. So Uh, I was doing research for the topic. Thank you. (laughs) Making sure everything was prepped. For those who listen to both of our podcasts, the voice you're hearing is Nerds on Film co-host David McGuire. Hello. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you. Dave, you've been wanting to be on this podcast for some time now. Yeah, ever since Sarah was on, and she <laughs> did that awesome podcast about the uh, technology of the future or yeah. perceptions of the future and perceptions all that. Yeah. of the future. Mm-hmm. Man, I was so green listening to that. Well, in yeah. fairness, you, you have been on once before when we did our joint episode, our fusion episode, where we came together and discussed right. the history of right. Thanksgiving, but we didn't really give you an opportunity to to be in the in the limelight, so to speak, to, to be our premier guest. And so... We're very excited to have you here. Oh, I'm I'm very pleased I could be on the show. I'm very excited for today's topic. It's going to be an interesting one. Well, it's great because it just ties in with the holiday so perfectly. (laughs) And what? Yes. Yeah, because think about it. This is a time of gathering, a time of feasting, and so what better topic than to do human sacrifice and cannibalism? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me just take a second before we do that and just be the parent here. Uh, to our listeners who are more sensitive to this topic, uh, I just want to give you a warning in advance that tonight will probably feature lots of graphic examples of cannibalism and maybe even of human sacrifice. So if you feel like you're going to be squeamish in any way about that, please turn off the podcast now. Yeah, I and, mean, we'll, uh, we'll, we're not we'll going to gross week. you out or anything. We're not going to we're not going to try to be explicitly gross or by any means, but we're going to be talking about it from a real and very historical perspective, and so we need to, to be able to go into to some detail. And, yeah. and you know, some folks may not be all for them. So uh, join us next week uh, <laughs> when we discuss <laughs> the, something that's not for, involving... For the Christmas episode. <laughs> for the Christmas episode. <laughs> in the meantime, you're looking for another podcast to fill your time. Just hop on over to Nerds on Film. Yeah. yeah. Shameless plugs. Yeah. <laughs> another topic of tonight's episode. Yeah. 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 Um, we're going to do the best we can to bring some some levity to it make it as entertaining as we can because it's a pretty dark it is pretty dark subject. Yeah, I think, not going to turn yeah. this into a, a snuff film it's interesting when we go into these topics because for me when I was researching this topic I immediately got reconnected with that universal sense of humanity yeah. that I felt because I really felt for the people on the opposite end of both of these uh, rituals and I think everybody out there unless you're a sociopath um, has <laughs> has some will feel the same way and I'll tell you, though, it's funny because they are both so ingrained into what it is to be human. They've both been with us since the very beginning of humanity. It goes some, back to prehistory, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and some would argue that, you know, there are examples of both of these practices still going on today. They right. might it's be not arguable more, it is happening. You know? Yeah, well, yeah. Now uh, we it, just call it genocide. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, opinions on this, and we'll, we're going to get to them. We're going to discuss them. Well, Eric... For those who may be new to the podcast, we know your expertise is in ancient history. Mine's more in contemporary, which isn't really history, is it? It's just what's kind of going on. We call that present. <laughs> it's historical, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> well, you you are quite right that my, my interests lie very much in the ancient world. And beginning thousands and thousands of years ago, back into prehistory, before recorded history, 
there are examples of human sacrifice that have gone on. And I, I do want to kind of just suggest that maybe we break this up into two kind of sections. I'd like to talk about human sacrifice first. Yeah. And then I think if it's okay with everyone, we just transition into cannibalism after that. Because I feel like it's important to explain why cannibalism can happen. And the two are actually very much connected in many cases. And I feel like it will be a, a natural progression. If that's cool with everyone that at the table here. That seems fine with me. Yeah. Awesome. In fact, before I even get really into the human uh, sacrifice aspect, I just want to talk about sacrificial rituals in general. Because that's, again, heralding back to the earliest times of humanity. Where we got together and we were expressing our control over nature, control mm-hmm. over our environment. And we were trying to harness everything that was powerful to us. And one of those ways to do so was to look at the other animals that coexisted with us, many of which were frightening to us, many of which we banded together in security and safety to protect ourselves from, but then killed them and offered them up as, as these sacrificial offerings in order to absorb their power, to become one with them. And that's where we see a lot of the earliest examples of animal sacrifice starting in prehistory. And are we talking about, like, pyres? Are we talking about just putting them on an altar and killing it? Uh, Even pre-altar, the sacrifice associated even with the hunt. You know, maybe we were intending to eat this animal, but we were first respecting it and its power by performing an act and ceremony within its ritual killing it or ritual slaughtering, which is what is referred to when you're going to kill an animal and eat it, but you want to give respect or associate it with a ceremony. And it's really not too far of a jump, though, if you think about that, kind of the origins of sacrificial offerings, to then take it from animals, lower animals, I guess you would call them, so to speak, and then up to higher, more self-aware animals being human beings. Would they just do one and then leave the rest of that species alone? As if to say, you know, we've already made our sacrifice, we're one with that animal, now let's leave the rest of them alone because we are a part of you now, you're a part of us, or was quantity not even a, a subject or a thought in their mind? Probably not so much a subject or thought in the very beginning. Okay. Just because I don't think throughout mankind up until recently, really, we've decided, you know what, we're going to wipe this species off the face of the planet. <laughs> That's going to be our job. Let's right. do that. I feel like it was more circumstantial, right? So again, it was associated with hunting and right. the animals that were already going to be hunted and, and used to sustain them. Right. They also needed to perform some sort of ceremony to either absorb that power from them and sustain themselves and keep on going mm-hmm. or to give respect to that animal. And where that happens then and switches over into the human sacrificial portion is once we had formed communities, once we had kind of settled down, right? So we've moved out of prehistory. We're not so much hunter-gatherers anymore, but now we're more stationary, more stable. Now we're starting to war with each other a bit. Now the the game has changed, so to speak. And while we're not going out hunting people, we are committing acts of human sacrifice against fellow men so that we can absorb their power because they are, in this context, the same kind of threat that animals were providing now. Now it was a neighboring tribe that was providing a threat. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, have you ever heard of headhunting? I've heard of it, but I've never actually heard of it in the context, I'm sure, that it yeah, originated neither from. Yeah, <clears throat> So, headhunting is kind of a primitive term, right? But it is. Uh, it was coined about 100, 200 years ago. But essentially, it was an, a practice by many tribal cultures where upon killing an enemy on the battlefield, uh, the head or other trophy portion of the body was dismembered and then brought back. And it was essentially a way of showing... I'm more powerful than you and the rest of your tribe. I can conquer over you. And it sends a message of confidence among the whole group that individual lives in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, again, it's associated with more of a ritualistic kind of magic rite, saying, now I'm taking your power. I bested you on the battlefield. Now it makes me stronger. Mm -hmm. And I can go out and, and best others. And so while this person wasn't taken away and then laid down on altar and killed in that sense, the act of removing the head or the limbs or what have you and bringing it back as a trophy, I think then kind of propelled human sacrifice to the level that it became later in history. Yeah. Interesting. Everything has to have an origin, right? Everything sure. has to start somewhere. And uh, it's not a big stretch, again, like I said, to take ritual animal sacrifice and then move it right over to humans. Well, yeah, because sooner or later the game is going to be boring for some folks and they're going to have that innate feeling of wanting to to progress and do something different and something more challenging and what's more challenging from an animal to your neighbor yeah it's interesting you bring this up because i see a connection here Uh, there's a book that i read called the omnivore's dilemma a couple years ago and that's about mostly about our industrial food complex but the thing that they that michael paul and the author talks about was he worked on a farm for a little bit and uh he was there and he actually slaughtered a couple chickens 
And he said it was a very disturbing experience for him because the experience of taking any life at all and watching the animal die, it left a mark that he will never forget. And he's more grateful now when he eats meat. But what's interesting is the people who work in slaughterhouses, there are some studies that show that the repeated slaughter of animals makes them devalue life in general and they yeah. become more sadistic. So if, these, if you have these cultures, these villages of people who are predominantly hunter-gatherers, they're hunting at some point and they just lose the sense of acknowledging the difference between humans and animals. Well, I, I would argue that slightly. And considering the way that we live in our society today, the way that we take for granted the dispatching of animals for the purpose of food, because oftentimes we go to the grocery store, right? We go yeah. out to eat. We don't see the ending of the life of that animal before it reaches our plate. We just but, see the, the end result, right. which makes it better for us, I think. But back in a hunter-gatherer society, that was every single day. The people who were out there were hunting, they were hunting for their food, they understood it as food, and so they didn't make maybe that same connection, but I think they still had to have that same side of respect. And I think actually that's where a lot of animal sacrifice comes from because of that desire to sure. still be one with those animals and still respect yeah. them. Uh, and, you know, the whole society, the whole group of people it, were involved in some way in the dispatchment of this animal. Because once it was killed, it was many yeah. times a job of women and children that then come in and clean out the carcass and cook the carcass and right. use the furs for, for clothing and the children would be involved. Duty. Yeah. yeah, so this was something that's very different than where we are today, where we can go to a, a factory where, for the lack of a better word, a factory, right? So a, an abattoir, a slaughterhouse where yeah. they're killing and dispatching <clears throat> animals one after the other in this very cold, methodical way. Whereas before it was understood as this was a part of who you were was part of your society. Yeah, you went communal. out and hunted and it became part of you. Exactly. Well, then also the other thing is if you slaughtered a large animal, it would probably last a couple of days too. So it oh, was, yeah. it was a more sporadic occurrence. Whereas with the industrialization of food production is what you're saying. If you're working in a slaughterhouse, you're getting shipment every day of yeah. these animals that you're killing. So you're doing it every single day and the habit just forms and forms from there. And it's very psychologically draining. Yeah. So I never mind. Yeah. I just see how it could be different, but okay. Uh, I will say, though, that eventually human sacrifice evolved into a way that it was uh, unique. You know, everything kind of starts more or less the same, and then we all diverge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you go back in time far enough, we're all banging the stones the same way, people, okay? But as we develop our own independent cultures and belief systems, then sacrifice takes on all sorts of different meaning throughout the world. And I find it interesting that the ones that really stand out to us, right, are the ones that Western culture has really come face to face with relatively recently. So when we think about the Aztecs, for example, mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. think about the depiction of the Aztecs as told to us by the conquistadors. Right, which is these these images of natives who are being impaled on spears and uh, slaughtered on these massive altars and being rolled down the steps. And tremendous numbers. Yeah, and exactly. Because you have some uh, accounts of, you know, for example, with the Aztecs when they were rebuilding the, the Great Pyramid of the Sun uh, at uh, Tetuacan, that they dispatched 80,000 people in order to satisfy the gods during the ceremony. Now, when you think about that number, though, yeah. 80,000 people, that's ridiculous. And here's the even more interesting part, because you want to talk about either cognitive dissidence or just collective psychology. Most of these people were willing, too. And there's a reason for that, because you're talking about the reason why the Aztecs and any of the Mesoamericans did perform human sacrifice to please the gods is because they thought if they didn't do this, the world was going to end. And that's true. It was heavily ingrained in society. Children who were offered up as offerings as well, which was common because there were different types of sacrifices to right. different types of gods, were taught at a very young age, as soon as they could comprehend, that that was going to be the end of their lives. They knew when that was going to end, and they walked up in many cases to that altar, probably terrified just as a child would be because it's a, a natural response to something like that, but with an understanding that that was going to be the end of their lives, but for a greater good. And in fact, many other sacrificial offerings were treated like royalty for the months leading up to their deaths. Uh, we have other depictions, right? Like in Apocalypto, where you have a very different scene. And that was true. They did take prisoners of war. They did put them into a kind of hunting game, if you will, again, to appease a whole different deity set. But I almost feel like those kind of movies and the stories from the conquistadors originally are a little bit of a distorted view. Of course they oh, are. Absolutely. When we're yeah. talking about 80,000, that is a number that is ridiculous. Why would you kill 80,000 people? You probably didn't even have 80,000 people <laughs> living in your 
in your tribe at that time, right? <laughs> it's hyperbole. Yeah. yeah, and much more conservative estimates have actually put that number around the, the dedication of the of the Pyramid of the Sun as high as maybe 10,000, which is still That's a incredible. huge number. I was actually thinking it was going to be far less than that. But it could have been far less than that. It could have been around 2,000, which again, we're still. talking about... It's 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 inefficient. I mean, that's not to sound so cruel or sound so. You see somebody with like a map of the town. And he's like, "Give me the spear," and he just throws it <laughs> that area. Go. <laughs> God, does anyone else think it's really weird that we just live in the nicest part of town and that we just we don't have to work and everyone's always giving us food and that? Hey, what are those guys with clubs doing over there? <laughs> Dude, you're off mark, man. You're off mark. <laughs> the tree's that way. <laughs> so <laughs> to bring it back in, though, we're talking about cultures that viewed human sacrifice as the norm. They saw it as being yeah. okay. And many of them were willing participants. And this kind of ties in with the other form of human sacrifice that was extremely common. And that was the death of concubines and retainers who were meant to accompany someone of great wealth or great authority in a society. And in doing so would be guaranteed a really nice afterlife. So let's jump to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. <laughs> Before we do that, can I just make a quick little parallel to today? Let's do it. Because we are all worried not really worried. There's a lot of us who are still worried about this supposed end of the world that's happening on December 21st of 2012 of this year. I have that day off. You have the day Well, good for you. That is I don't. so annoying. It's, Every uh, time I have a day off, it either rains or it's the end of the world. Yeah. Hey, no, it's a Friday, guys. So you know what? TGIF. <laughs> go out with a bang. Eric's going to wake up and he's like, man, I'm so glad I have my cup of coffee and my newspaper. And is that a tidal wave? Damn it. <laughs> um... Yeah, we put the explicit warning out. I think we can let a few slip. It's okay. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Is damn it a swear word? It used to be. Oh. Yeah. Well, Maybe in like the 19th history, century. So. Okay. Um, the whole reason why that exists, of course, is from their calendar that stopped at 2012. Right. Well, that's because they believed around that time, or at least so we can, we can speculate from history, that they were talking about the fifth age. The fifth age was they believed was going to be the end of the human world, and that the gods were just going to come and destroy existence. And these human sacrifices we were talking about were their way of prolonging that as long as possible. And many people think that if they continue with their traditions and continue performing not only sacrifices, but other rituals associated with that, just the continuity of their religion, that when that time came, they would simply start again. They would start their calendar over. Yeah. It's really not that uncommon in the ancient world. Look in ancient Egypt. Every time the pharaoh died, they started their calendar yeah. over again. In fact, even though, not to go on too much of a tangent, but even the word apocalypse means more or less it's a cycle it's you're ending something and then starting over again absolutely back so, on topic sorry i just no, wanted to no that's fine that's fantastic connection. we needed to talk about that it was important we yeah. need to get those 2012 you know, there, was, there was somebody that was listening that was like they're talking about the aztecs and the mayans like this needs to be brought up soon yeah <laughs> and they just thanked you brian they weren't talking they were talking to no one but they were thanking you're me. welcome <laughs> <laughs> they're in their car and they're just like thank you brian <laughs> <laughs> So I will say, though, in ancient Egypt and in Mesopotamia, then you had that different kind of sacrificial offering that was going on. And this is very, very early in their history. Yeah. It died out very, very quickly. And we only see in Egypt, anyhow, one or two instances of it surrounding the very first pharaohs of a, of a unified Egypt. Uh, one of them, Ah, the, the first pharaoh of the, of the very first dynasty, he had about 140 retainers buried with him. And they were of all different ages. They were of all different kind of um, jobs and responsibilities and what have you. And so it was pretty obvious what had happened here that when he died, his wife, his children, officials that were very close to him, and his retainers were all buried with him. And they probably all didn't die at the same time. It's pretty obvious. You know, there had to have been uh, something that facilitated their death. And clearly it was probably very much understood. Hey, if you die with the Pharaoh, you get buried with the Pharaoh, you're going to go on to the best afterlife Ever. And here I thought it was just a really badly timed flu season. <laughs> <laughs> and it existed for a very short time until the Egyptians came up with a really clever way of getting around it. And that was they created small servant figurines. Uh, they were called shoptis or ushapti from later times. Uh, a couple different translations for the meaning means more or less listener or follower of instructions. And it was their job to be put in the tombs and they would do all the work that you needed and you didn't have to kill anybody. And very quickly, 
that practice of, of burying retainers with the pharaoh died out. Now, is that the first time that we've seen a union? In, yeah. <laughs> they're like, guys, oh. listen, I'm, I'm tired of his dying. <laughs> What's hilarious, though, is that these Shoptis were thought to be as real as real people. And so in order to keep them in check, uh, in later times, they have little overseer Shoptis that have like little <laughs> little whips on them. I'm serious. So when in doubt, use magic. Yeah. That's, that's what we learned from the Egyptians. <laughs> Indeed. And the Mesopotamians. Mesopotamians had a very similar parallel in their history right around the same time period. <clears throat> and it wouldn't be a big surprise of, hey, you know, trade route's coming. So uh, here your ruler died and killed all of his people. Nah, we don't do that anymore. We've got these little figurine guys. Want to buy one? <laughs> hey, all right. Brings it back. Boom. <laughs> In that case, cross-parallel cultural development does not apply. Yeah, that's this more... This is trading. Yeah, exactly. Trading. But that also makes sense because Mesopotamia is so close to Egypt. Yeah. You know, it's... They shared all sorts of ideas, the development of right? language, the, the development of writing. Right. All that was going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and that was also common in China. In, in, in China, in ancient China, there were other sacrificial offerings that were given up to deities, primarily deities surrounding the rivers, which made sense because flash floods do happen in China rather often. It can yeah. cause uh, devastation to crops sure. and to people's, uh, people's homes. Yeah. But later, they adopted a very similar model to the ancient Egyptians and that many rulers in, in China, when they died, their retainers, their wives, their concubines, they all came with them. They were killed for that reason. Wow. If I may, I know I'm, I'm bogarting again, aren't I? I'm sorry. I, just, I find I it really interesting. I am learning a whole lot, so we're, <laughs> we're good. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say something. Um, let me jump in for a second. Yeah, please. You were talking to me in one of our earlier pre-discussions about there's a practice that's still done in India today. Was it called the sati? The sati. So tell us about the sati ritual. So sati ritual is the most extreme form of mourning and or expectation mm -hmm. for a woman in any society that I've ever read about. And we hear about other examples of honor killings that could be, I think, considered human sacrifice. We, we see some examples of this uh, in India. It's self-sacrifice, yeah. Yeah, where, or where the family of someone takes out revenge upon one family member's misdeeds by killing them and thus preserving family honor, which is pretty extreme, I know. Well, most recently was the one in Arizona that happened, I want to say, about two years ago. Yeah, I remember Or so, a, a daughter who's, I believe they came from either Iran or Iraq. I think it was Afghanistan, Or Afghanistan. It? She was breaking away. I forget her name, and I, I feel horrible that I do, but I, um, she was breaking away from the family culture, and her father did not approve of that at all. And so she had gone out shopping, or she was at the bank, or she was out somewhere with a, her aunt. And um, the father had tailed them, and when they came out of the building, he then got his car revved, and he hopped over a median and then ran his daughter down and murdered her. And I believe he actually got off for it, or either he's in trial, or he had actually had uh, been exonerated. No contest, I imagine. Or, but yeah. basically, there, there was a huge debate about it because you know they're like, "Well, why did you do it?" And he said, "Well, in my religion, yeah. this is this is still practice, and this is okay for me to yeah. do." Well, David, you know that that's a really good point though that you bring up because it is something that's current, that's modern, that's happening, mm -hmm. and it is an aspect of someone's culture, and so therefore we here don't want to insult or offend anyone we're just stating facts we're just talking about yeah. the history of what it is maybe it's a history of something that happened two years ago or two thousand years ago yeah. we're, just, we're just talking about that and what's the most common method of sati so again tying it back into india right yeah. and, and sati let me put it into context for everybody so upon the death of a woman's husband it was considered common in some areas in and around india and in certain cultural so groupings. not nationwide not nationwide, no, by no means. It was it was very exclusive to certain regions and what have you. Okay. Where, as an example of any misdeeds the husband had ever performed to guarantee that he would have a good afterlife and that she would then be able to accompany him for a good afterlife, she was expected to burn herself on his funeral pyre. To throw herself on the funeral pyre, yeah. Some suggestions say throw. It was actually probably more likely performed where she would be laying next to her husband at the time at which it would be lit. And that she would be set afire yeah. while he was burning too. But when you, when you do to, burnings too, to be and this sounds really really horrifying. But she probably yeah. would have died of smoke inhalation before her body burned up. Oh, absolutely. Or yeah. had a heart attack or or some other stress related. So this was for her to absolve her husband's misfortunes or misdeeds throughout mm -hmm. life. Pretty so much. She burns herself to absolve his misdeeds so he can have a better afterlife and thus. Gives yeah. her a better afterlife. Yeah, pretty messed yes. up. <laughs> I mean, again, I don't want to oh take sides yeah. or anything, but no, yeah, no, I'm just, I just wanted to make sure that it was clear on the, on the <clears throat> definition. Yeah, that's yeah. that's and, intense. And also yeah. to make clear, this is not a practice that is performed 
today. I, I think the last, some of the last recorded instances of this were over 100 years ago. And so the British, when they came on in and colonized India and chopped it up along with the French and a few others, they pretty much outlawed it. And it, of course, it died well, out. they're coming in it with a largely Christian perspective, and they right. just saw it as immoral. You guys probably. do what now? You know, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're going to stop that. Yeah. Or as the French said, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's interesting, though, from my reading that I did further, is that it didn't always have to end that way. It was expected of someone, right? It was suggested in the reading that I had done that it happens probably more associated with the tragic death of someone who's very young and leaving a young widow. That if she had made the offer to lay down next to her husband and, and die in such a way that the family of the husband would oftentimes absolve her of any responsibility and say, that's okay, you don't have to do that. We pardon you, so to speak. And so sometimes it was believed just to have been expected for the woman to offer it and then have it refused. But not always. Well, that makes... <laughs> sorry. That's like, that's like that fighting for a bill kind of at the end of the night with a date. It's just <laughs> like, no, 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 no. I'll pay for it. No, it's okay. I'll take oh, really? care I of it. I want to do it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. but, like, but then there's that one asshole husband. I'm sorry. This is an explicit podcast. We'll just throw a few curse words out there. Who's just like, no, you're going to do this. We haven't written it to the prenup. So. <laughs> so then what would happen then if they just flat out said, you know, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it? If they uh, never they would, offered, would it just exile them, or would they, or would they, in turn, just it wasn't too murder her or, okay. in the details? But I imagine they would be ostracized from their community and or killed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So either either you kill yourself, or we kill you, or we kill you. But keep in mind when we're talking about perceptions of death and afterlife. Yeah, they far outweigh what was going on in the living world. Of course. Particularly in the ancient times and in times even just, you know, a thousand years ago as people were like, hey, I had a certain amount of life expectancy here. I could, you know, try to make a good run for it, but I'd much rather have a nice afterlife. So, yeah, I'm going to do it. Well, plus that the Indian culture also believed in a lot of reincarnation too. So if you did, you know, misdeeds in this life, you were going to come back as something that was horrible or tainted, yeah. like a yeah. fruit fly or something. Unless you'd, of course, obtain moksha, then you... Progress to the Hindu version of heaven, basically. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> keep in mind, in the Hindu faith, there are so many different creeds and sects that, right. you know, again, this was not a tradition that was performed nationwide, like I said before. Right. This was this was very <clears throat> regional. This was very specific. There are, I think, even certain gods in Hinduism that are regional, too. Yeah. It's not even Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a polytheistic society, yeah. so absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I have a question for you folks, though. Have you ever wondered where we get the word thug from? Mm -hmm. As in, I've just sent my thugs out to get you? Yep. No, but I'm very intrigued. Being well, that I'm a nomenphile, yes, I would love to know. Well, considering you're both also movie nuts, uh, anyone remember the, the primary plot point around Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Yes, it was, uh, oh goodness, what was the, what was the villain's name? I just uh, remember the, the saying Kali Ma. That's yeah, all. I remember it was a cannibalistic tribe or something along those lines, or it was a... Well, it's human sacrifice. Human sacrifice tribe where they would then rip the heart out of, uh -huh. the, of their subject. Forget the whole ripping heart out and lowering into the fiery pit of molten lava that for some reason was just conveniently there and swirling. But think about the scene where they're all sitting around and they're having dinner and Indiana Jones accuses the Mahajara of you know human sacrifice. And he says, well, the talk about the thuggy cults is highly over-exaggerated. And of course, later we find out that these thuggy cults were in fact there and they're the primary bad guys and they were performing human sacrifice. Oh, so it was a cult of religion inside of Hindu. That was dedicated to the god Kali. And Kali Ma. Just like in the movie, but not quite. The actual history behind it is actually far more interesting. The Thuggy were a group of thugs. They were murderers and thieves and robbers who would actually hide themselves in traveling groups and caravans. And they would be discovered by them and they would gain their trust and gain their friendship, sometimes spending months integrated into them. And then when they least suspected it, would wake up in the middle of the night and slaughter the whole bunch and dedicate the killings to Kali. And it was a ritualistic sacrifice that was performed. And then they would take the spoils of war and that's what they would live off of. Oh my God. Yeah. And wow. again, the British, when they were in India, tried to do as much as they could to put an end to these thugs. And the word thug then got assimilated into the English language and is used to describe a, a group of mirandering robbers who would go about causing mischief and mayhem. And it lost its sacrificial context, right? Because it had no context to parallel in, in European culture. Right. And so the word just came on to be associated with robbery and thievery, when in reality it has an origin in human sacrifice. Wow. That's and so these... These were just completely random killings too, right? So they would just stoke, you know, pick someone out from the crowd and say, "Oh, that person looks like they may be wealthy enough for me." And 
Well, it was more, there's this traveling caravan. They've got all sorts of lovely things with them. Let's go ahead and hang out with them for, you know, several weeks, gain their trust and kill them. So the more trusting you are, the likely, more likely you are to wow, be killed. Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah, pretty wild. That's, I, that's a word that I can't, I'm not I using don't on this feel podcast. comfortable using that word anymore now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, just, just the word thug? The no. word thug, yeah. Yeah, pretty crazy. I was going to exclaim another four-letter word uh, when, when I heard that. That's, that's unbelievable. So obviously, human sacrifice can take on all sorts of different shapes right. and forms, and some that are very surprising, some that are shocking, some you right. wouldn't even think of. Sometimes it's used as a tool yeah. in political positioning. Look at Tibet. And I think well, this will help tie us into cannibalism, because there were many accusations made against the Tibetan people by the Chinese government when they wanted to come in and essentially annex Tibet and take it over, which they did. And they made accusations that it was the primitive ruling class who was organized by the Dalai Lama, who was in control. And it was uh, a wild and horrible place where people were being killed and, and human sacrifices and cannibalism was being practiced. And therefore, they needed to come into Tibet and take control of this out-of-control situation. Never mind that the Buddhist lamas were pretty much strict vegetarians uh, at that point. And, and respected all life exactly. on the planet. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't so, quite make sense, does so it? It's total propaganda, exactly. Absolutely. And the Dalai Lama himself, who who's alive today, who was who regarded as a great philosopher and humanitarian, uh, but the world around, a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, one, uh, of the most, for the, one of the foremost spiritual thinkers in any religion. Yeah, yeah. would never ever condone for one sacrificial killings or two cannibalism even though there are examples of it happening pre-buddhism pre-buddhism's introduction into the tibetan region it, it's not uncommon there we, we just cited examples from around the world yeah. right so yeah. why, why not have it happen there but what was used as this propaganda tool was the chinese using it and they even created fake museums where they would bring out the dismembered body parts of people who were probably just left up in the Himalayas where these funeral practices were performed, where the bodies were oftentimes left and open to exposure. Right, right. Yeah. And they would go out there and they would take them back and say, here, this is an example of cannibalism. Here, this is an example of human sacrifice. Yeah. This is why we're here. And this it could have also been it. vultures too, because, I mean... Sure, they were yeah. open and open to the environment <clears throat> and to exactly. exposure. Oh my God. I remember seeing that, to make a film connection, I remember seeing the, that scene happen in... Um, the movie Kundun that Martin Scorsese did about yeah. the life of the Wonderful great Wonderful movie. When really his father dies, movie. they talk about, they wrap him very loosely in those scarves and then they let, just let the body sit. Yeah. yeah. Well, keep in mind, they're up in the Himalayas, you know, dirt's pretty stiff, hard to dig into in the first place. It yeah. makes more sense to not expend all that energy in a, in a <laughs> that high in that climate where digging feels like it takes a whole lot longer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just but leave the body Before open. we get too much into cannibalism, I did want to draw a parallel here because... Yeah, of course, we know of all these examples of human sacrifice, but I think in American culture, which is a, has a largely predominant Judeo-Christian influence to it, we think of human sacrifice, of course, to the story of Abraham, right? That's right. And I think it's interesting that you bring this whole thing up about the Mesopotamians being so prevalent about it because... Was it Abraham from Mesopotamia? He was. He was from the town of Ur. Uh, what's pronounced, it's spelled U-R, I think it's pronounced Ur. Ur. Okay. Yep. And uh, before he moved into the land of Cana, of course, which was the promised land, uh, eventually... <clears throat> the land of Abraham, and uh, the allegory of the story of his son. And the reason why I'm saying his son is because it differs depending on your religion. Right. In Judaism, it's Isaac that is the son yeah. who is brought to the altar and God asks to sacrifice um, as a test of his faith. But actually, it's different because, do you guys remember who his first son was? Oh, gosh. It was Harpo, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. Well, first, <laughs> of, first of all, I went to Catholic school. I never even knew he had a second son until I didn't know until just now. Until I was in high school, um, yeah. Because we don't talk too much about Hagar. Hagar was Abraham. Sammy Hagar. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when Abraham was having trouble conceiving with Sarah, Sarah God said, "You can take a, another lover to produce your son." And Hagar was the lover he took, mm -hmm. and he produced the son Ishmael. Oh. Right. And then, of course... Oh, so I think Eric and I both thought that Hagar was the name of the son. Yeah, yeah no, that's what I was no, thinking, No, too. no, yeah. So, Hagar Is, was, was shunned because by Sarah, and therefore the child was, was shunned, right? But here's where it gets interesting, where the two cultures are different, because in Islam... The story is the same, except it's not Isaac, it's Ishmael. So the one that was cast out, who was not the legitimate son, so to speak. He wasn't cast out in the in the Islamic version. He was That's, the one that was taken up to... He was the one who was taken. Isaac is, appears nowhere in the, oh, in the Islamic version. Oh, hmm. interesting. Yeah. Is Sarah mentioned in the, in the, in the Islamic version? Mm -hmm. I would imagine not. I'm not very well versed in the Quran, so I imagine, yes. Probably she briefly. has some context in there. 
But Ishmael went off and started a different tribe. That's what the story goes, at least in the Hebrew scriptures go. So interesting how that's kind of a, their way of explaining history in their own fashion. Again, it goes immediately back to that ritual, right? That yeah. they, they, the sacrifice in some manner was a test of faith or an offering to the gods, or in this case, God. In the story yeah. that I'm familiar with, what is then replaced as the offering is a lamb. It's right. a sacrificial lamb. Right, a lamb without blemish, yes. Right, and therefore, again, tying right back into the origin, probably, uh, of human sacrifice, animal sacrifice. Right. Full circle, people. Right. And let's make the bring even further, of course, because Jesus is often in Christianity referred to as the Lamb of God, the metaphor of his own self-sacrifice Was considered for humanity. the form of a human sacrifice, right? But I'm also Catholic, so we also have a very cannibalistic view of it, because when Jesus is in the Last Supper, he, he takes the bread and he says, oh. this is my body, yeah. which will be given up for you. And most Christians in the world who are not Catholic or of the orthodoxy view that as just a metaphor. He's saying, we are all buying into, yes, I'm right. going to give myself up. The Catholics are like, no, 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 it was real. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, there's the there's This doctrine. is my forearm, I gave it to you. This is the... Uh, in remembrance of me. Right. And they, they and Catholics justify it as saying it is, um, it is the doctrine of transubstantiation, that through some miracle at the altar, the bread and wine that you consume becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I found it in a couple different places that people who are outside of that realm of Catholicism view that as cannibalism. And yet, I never even thought of it that way. I knew exactly what it was supposed to be growing up, but we never thought of ourselves as being cannibalistic because it was yeah. a more of a... Well, think about cannibalism. It, it's focused very much, again, in the ritual and the absorbing of that individual and, and mm-hmm. what you want of them in you. You know, it's mm-hmm. not so much, mm, you're tasty. It's, <laughs> you know, it's here are the qualities that are imbued within you that I find amazing. I want them. I want to consume them. And in many ancient scriptures talking about cannibalism, it was oftentimes gods who were performing cannibalism on other gods. They were absorbing their powers through this this act of consuming one another. So it's a way of absorbing and bringing those qualities into your body. Correct me if I'm wrong, you see that a lot in uh, Greek mythology with cannibalism mm-hmm. amongst the, the gods themselves. Is that correct? You, but you, I, I think there was a, one specific story that kind of dealt with it, but I, I, I haven't touched it in a while. So There are examples of... of cannibalism in ancient Greek and ancient Roman literature, many times, however, they were alluding to it in a time of chaos, in a time when Mm. things were uncivilized. And that's actually when you started having this switch happen, right? Where we viewed cannibalism as being, again, ritualistic, but still kind of of the norm, tying closely in with human sacrifice, and then becoming shunned and taboo and being a put down. Ooh, you guys eat people? You guys are bad. Yeah, and then and one tribe accuses the other of cannibalism, and who knows? Maybe they're both <clears throat> eating people, maybe they're not. And to, to bring another parallel to here, because I think we, we've ta- established in previous episodes that the area of history where I'm, I can contribute is mostly Judeo-Christian history in the Bible. Um, and there is actually a verse in the Hebrew Scriptures that justifies cannibalism under extreme circumstances. Hmm. It comes from the book of Jeremiah, and it's uh, for the Bible readers out there, it is chapter 19, verse 9. It says, I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh during the stress of the siege imposed on them by enemies who seek their lives. Interesting you mention that, because we have documented evidence that during the Crusades and during those times of siege, that's what people had to result to to survive, was through cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And let's talk about that too, right? I mean, when we're talking about cannibalism, we're not just talking about the ritual aspect, which I think, you know, we've really kind of approached certainly in the in the human sacrifice aspect of it. Right. But when it comes down to survival, yeah, whew, you know, sometimes cannibalism, as, as gruesome as it sounds, is necessary for you to survive. Which may also explain why there's not many laws on the books officially about cannibalism. In fact, when I was doing my research, I came across the legal definition through, well, what better resource than uh, than to go to a law school's website? So I pulled up some some resource from Cornell Law School's webpage, www.law.cornell.edu. And if you were to do a search in there, you would find on their database this example. And in the United States, there are no official laws against cannibalism. Really? At all. No. Usually someone who has been tried for a cannibalistic act has been tried on the grounds of murder more than anything. Yeah. Murder mm-hmm. or manslaughter. But not the actual eating part. So if you find a dead body, technically it's legal to eat it. <laughs> but well, very okay. guys, legal, but if not, the family not, not socially out that acceptable. Eaten the body, they could then bring against you charges uh, desecration related to of the desecration of the, of, the, yes. of the remains. There's also that too. Yes, but I suppose, unless of course they, it's an affidavit that they're willing. Right. Well, that's the thing. I guess you could come into agreement with somebody. You could say, 
in my will, I legally leave you my remains, yeah. to which you may do whatever you like with, and if that means putting me in the pot and having me for dinner, you can do it. Definitely. And, and so, that's kind of freaky to me. Absolutely. And there's a couple of examples from recent history. By the way, the British only formally outlawed cannibalism in the early 1800s. So, Well, they've <laughs> still got a couple hundred years on us. Yeah. We still it's like, gentlemen, gentlemen. It's gross. Yeah, and I think we both <laughs> have two. It's most certainly gross. Uh, perhaps we should prevent cannibalism right. from happening any further. But to go back to the whole book of Jeremiah, that we're talking about against extreme circumstances, right? Right. And David and I both, I think, have examples of two circumstances in history where this may have been justified. Oh, I, I'm starving for this information. Okay, so the one that, that's referred to in most legal cases in the United States is the case of Regina versus Dudley and Stevens. And in the case, it's two naval citizens, two were Dudley and Stevens, who, um, along with their shipmates, Brooke and Parker, were marooned on a raft after their vessel, uh, which is called the Mignonette, uh, was destroyed in a storm. And they had no fresh water on the raft, so they're stuck at sea. Pretty horrible. Well, just uh, don't go out on the water with and, a boat named the Mignonette, and you'd be fine. <laughs> and they uh, Go with a boat called the strongest boat on the ocean. <laughs> like Oh, like the Titanic? <laughs> okay, yeah. good point. Touche. Touche. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> So anyway, um, and they, the only food they had were two cans of turnips. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I'd rather eat yeah. people than eat two so, cans and of they, turnips. So <laughs> they they also managed to survive, survive a shark attack. Oh wow! So, um, oh wow! Yeah. So they were they were they were on this island. Basically, they were stranded. They captured and ate a sea turtle, and then they ended up starving for a long time. And the, the youngest one, which is Parker, just out of pure insanity, just drank seawater and oh, became no. viciously dehydrated. Yeah. And um, then Parker went comatose. And so at that at that point, uh, Dudley killed him, and the survivors drank his blood um, and ate his meat for the next week before they were rescued. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and so the judges wow. judges in that case did not accept it as necessity because of the fact that they killed him. He wasn't already dead. So that's the that's the biggest example of when I guess it wasn't justified. Of course, we can talk about the Donner Party too, but that's almost cliche at this point. Everyone knows, in a general sense, what happened with the Donner Party. The biggest takeaway from the Donner Party is leave earlier. Yeah, and don't, don't trust a tour guide that does not know the path. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have I you just, done this before? No, but we're gonna be fine. I'm, I'm just <laughs> hoping like that there's some somebody who doesn't know the story of the Donner Party. It's like okay, so Donner Party. So if you're at a party, leave early before they serve the entree <laughs> because cause you never know what's gonna be. There. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. I can just imagine them in the wagon though. You know, it's starting a bit bit chilly, and uh, the wife sitting next to him, and it's like, you know, if you listen to me, we all left earlier. We should have left earlier. Do you have that map? Let me look at the map. No, I'm fine. And that's probably the person. I, I know a shortcut. We're going to be okay. And that was probably the person they ate. The one who was just nagging. I told you we were going to get lost. I told you. I said, how John many times went did the I other you? way. Well, that is John. Okay, we're going to go this way. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm, you know, not telling the truth here. If we get in trouble. You know what? Just you can eat me. Okay. You should have never said that. That was just not. Should have <laughs> never said that. a bad idea. <laughs> um. Do you want to talk about yours? Real yeah. Quick? Um, and so in the research of this, I found one that, I mean, I think a lot of people may remember. It happened back in 1972 with the Andes flight disaster. That's what. Yeah. This is the soccer team? This is the rugby team. Rugby team. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I had never really heard about it, obviously, since, you know, I'm fairly young. But um, it was a fascinating and very depressing article that I was reading in it. What had happened was is that their plane had taken off and they had hit a, a rough patch of weather. Oh, and right. so they decided, okay, we need to ground ourselves for a day at least and let the weather pass. And so they go ahead and they land. They stay a day over in, in – um, I forget exactly uh, where they were, near the Andes obviously. But they, it was somewhere in, in Chile and they had kind of rested. They took off on the 13th and they were trying to go down in between some of uh, the mountain ridges in the Andes. Oh. And but they hit a cloud patch and what had happened and this horrible horrible recollection of how it happened is on the Wikipedia. I mean, it it's so graphic. It's like watching a very graphic movie where their right wing hit a tip of a ridge. That broke that off. It hit uh, uh, some rotor in the back. Uh, of the tail then they went into the other side to overcompensate the left side hit a ridge it broke that off but then the spinning propeller blade came through and sliced through the cabin my god uh hit the back of the tail blew the tail out and they just they just crashed and so what had happened was and with the numbers here um, they had 40 passengers and by the end of all of this, only 16 had survived. And what was so incredible about this was that as they crashed, you know, it's winter time, 
snow starting to set in. And so uh, you know, there's some experts or excerpts in here from some novels that had been written about it. And they were discussing about how they kind of came to this conclusion that they were going to do this because, you know, none of them had winter clothing. None of them had eye protection from the, from the snow uh, or from the sun for that matter. They had no appropriate shoes to go hiking anywhere. And so some people died initially in the crash. Some people died shortly thereafter. They thought about eating the actual leather on the chairs and they knew that because of the dye, it would not be good for them and that would just make them worse. They couldn't eat the stuffing inside of there. So they thought, you know, by that time, the only thing that they had was bodies bodies because otherwise the clothes on their backs. Now, some might say, did they have food with them? They had very small amounts of food and uh, candy bars and uh, things of that nature. And of course, they probably ate those first. Yeah, they did. And they tried to ration as much as possible. But when you have 40 people on the flight, maybe, you know, 10 of those go away. That's still 30 people that you're having to ration all that food with plus you know, they had like four bottles of wine, the article was saying. Once the wine had been drunk, they then got a really brilliant idea to take the snow, put it on the metal inside of the um, of the actual plane or chairs, and they would let the snow melt from the sun into their actual wine bottle so that way they could have water. Um, but anyways, once their food had dried up, they basically had only themselves to turn to. And I mean, they went through horrible messes. Like one night they were in the plane and then a massive avalanche came and covered them and they were stuck. Everybody was stuck inside of the plane. So they had to work their way out of that. Ultimately, what it came down to is after they had done their act, um, two of them were voted to go up and over the ridge into town that they thought was maybe only a few miles away because the pilot had said that they were in uh, a Chilean area that was probably west of like a village, probably about maybe four or five mm. miles. He was way off. It was actually 18 miles to like the oh. east. Oh, and shit. so they had so two not people- only the wrong direction, but way, way further off than they were expecting. Right. So they had two people who went over. They made it finally to safety and then they said there's more of us we got to go back and go get them but what's the most devastating part was that they knew that no one was coming for them because 11 days in they had they had a radio trans uh, a transistor radio on the plane still and because of the conditions and because the plane was white and in the snow it was impossible to see from flybys and so they heard on the radio that they're calling off the search and they just sat there and just stunned, like, what's going to happen now? And what's really interesting is that one of them actually looked at everybody. And he's like, this was the best news that we could have ever received. And everyone's like, what, what, what are you talking about? And they started cursing at him. And he goes, the reason why this is so great is because now we get to get out of here and prove everybody wrong, essentially. Or, like, show that, you know, we're going to get out of here okay. So, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible story. And, I mean, but that is a you know an, an example, much like the Donner Party, where – it was needed and otherwise everyone was just going to yeah. be and it was a situation where there was no real necessarily slaughter that took place it was right. they, they were waiting for, for someone they to waited die. for someone to die and yeah. then even then they probably waited a couple of days because it was so cold the bodies were preserved well so they could say we're not going to do this we're not going to do this and maybe two weeks go by and they go okay well maybe yeah, maybe I we'll mean, do this I, I will say that uh, well this is completely unrelated to cannibalism but you know white plains and white snow Really bad idea. They, yeah, right. I mean, they should have no. In seriousness, they should have like black paint that on the top of the aircraft can you know discharge and explode yeah. in the event of an emergency. So if you do land in somewhere where there's snow cover, at least there's something that's yeah. kind of identifying nearby, almost you know, along the concept of a flare, just trying to get someone's attention. Or just don't paint the plane white. I mean, well, if you, you know, paint it black, then they, you shouldn't be flying at night. So it's kind of like a no. But like, there's other or like, have red paint. Like I like the paint. I you know, maybe, I mean, if you look at red or yeah, make it red yeah. or blue. I mean, if you look at like like a good example is Frontier. Yeah. Frontier Airlines, they're you know regional air, airline. They have a predominantly white plane, but they've got on the fins of the the wings and on the the rudder of the plane, there is very clear accents of color. Yeah, um, if you lose the ring, the wings, and the rudder. Which is what right. these guys happen, and then of course it snows heavily. Be like be like Southwest and just be blue and gold. Yeah, there you, you go. cannot miss that plane from above. <laughs> right, exactly. And just just clean the plane every day. So yeah, I I, just, I have an example of cannibalism that shows how how long it's really been in our society and our culture. Because I'm sure you know there there's evidence that suggests that cannibalism again goes back into prehistory and it's been around for a really long time. But uh, think about it in the context of how we've learned about cannibalism, how when we were growing up as children, how was it introduced to us? And there are many people in the world who have heard the tale of Hansel and Gretel. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. Hansel and Gretel is a is a 
telling a, and a warning against uh, against cannibalism. And of course, you know, staying on the path and not wandering off away from your parents. That's yeah. I think the real moral of the story there. <laughs> but you know, here's this here's this witch who, you know, gets these kids to come into her house and fattens convinces them, them and fatt- fattens them up and gets them nice and plump and and then when she's ready to throw them in the pot, they they're able to make a break for it and escape. But and they uh, push her into the oven before they yeah, leave. Yeah. And you know, I was just thinking we did our episode on uh, Jolly Old Saint Nick, yeah. uh, and he had a legend associated with him that also involved cannibalism. I didn't even think of that until just now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he is right. There was the the kids who were cannibalized, and he brought them back to life. That yeah. was his one of his miracles. That was his resurrection miracle. Yeah, and I want to see that movie. Saint Nick's a badass. <laughs> I was gonna say that. <laughs> John Goodman is Santa Claus. <laughs> Nicholas um, Amira. <laughs> um, uh, well, so uh, you mentioned Hansel and Girl. My favorite example from uh, stories from the ancients is Medea. Or, yeah. or as I like to call it, don't eat the soup. <laughs> because what a horrible story. A woman who's that pissed off at her husband for cheating mm-hmm. that she slaughters her own children and makes them into a soup and makes her eat it. Makes him, makes eat, it, it, makes yeah. him, makes him eat it, yeah. Well, what's even more disturbing about that is when... I'm sorry, I'm getting the... Is it, it's the Greeks, right? The, yeah. the Greeks were the ones who Greek, crafted started. the play, but then the Romans went all... Right. Well, <laughs> when the Romans took over and they decided to do the play, uh, they would find a slave slaves that they were wanting to kill anyways and they would bring them out and pose as the children and yeah. murder them right on the stage yep which could be considered a form of human sacrifice right yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and we talked ritual, about that in our theater episode absolutely yeah, yeah. R- yeah. ritual and, and performances are all tied in together the same thing really yeah it's funny how we just tied in like three or four different podcasts all in one episode <laughs> it, it all interweaves together cannibalism brings people together well i've got another i've got, I've got another <laughs> Now we've all been, we've been talking about circumstantial cannibalism uh, in the modern era, but unfortunately, there are more circumstances where it has not been circumstantial. It's been deliberate, very disturbing, and yeah. this one is quite disturbing. Um, and so this is why we gave the warning out. Um, in two thousand one, a German named Armin Muse placed an online solicitation for a boy that, if basically, if for real, I can kill him and butcher him. And uh, wait, wh- wait, wait, what did the ad say? He basically said, "Look, I'm a cannibal." I'm really a cannibal. I'm looking for a, a young boy in the range of maybe 18 to 30 that I can have sex with and then kill and then eat. Wow. And he actually got a willing party to come. Um, uh-huh. Here's where it gets really, really graphic, guys. So the boy was um, heavily doped up on painkillers. Heavily sedated. They uh, Self-imposed? Yeah, they, yeah no, he self-imposed, yeah, because he knew exactly what was going to happen the whole time. Um, he. Um, oh, my gosh. Do we know how old he was? Was he a minor? His name was Bernd Jürgen Brandis. He actually was not young at all. He was 43. Oh, okay. Um, well, so, I mean, not, not that yeah. that makes it all that much better, but thank God it's not a child. But um, they had sex, and then Muse cut off his penis, and then they ate it together. Oh, my God. I read that article. They flambeed it first. They flambeed it. Oh they God. ate it together. Uh, of course, there was lots of bleeding and everything, and then Burgess took a bath and fell asleep, and then that's when he slit his throat and began the ritual. Yeah, it, it kind of. Uh, this is only from two thousand one, by the yeah. way. This is eleven years ago. You know, it reminds me also, almost of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, obviously that was very different because Jeffrey Dahmer was it's a serial killer. Serial yeah. killer. But, yeah. but when, when you think about cannibalism, there's an act of it in in nature, sexual mm-hmm. cannibalism, where upon reaching copulation, the one member of the species then consumes the other gender, uh, and you you see this happen in examples with uh, arachnids and other. Insects and, and, and primates in some situations, it has been known to happen as well. And in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, one might even be able to argue that that was kind of, in a way, this kind of sexual cannibalism because he was performing these horrible, horrible yeah. sex offenses and then consuming his mm-hmm. victims. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when we think about it, it's so appalling because yeah. it goes against everything that makes sense in human nature. Yeah. To us, survival of our species is top priority. You know, we would never want to do this. It doesn't make sense. There's no purpose in this. Uh, And when it becomes frightening and violent and disturbed of this nature, it becomes all that much more disturbing for the the folks who have to hear it. But yet, somewhere deep in the recesses of those individuals' minds, they believe this to be either the thing that, that quenches their thirst or, B, 
actually is the ritual is the sacrifice for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, not to, not to get too off topic here, but I, I frequently watch a show called Dexter. And for those that may have watched the show or that are watching the show, his entire process is based on a ritual. Yeah. And that ritual is to find someone who is of a criminal uh, who basically a criminal who, who slipped through the cracks or someone that he's, Helped slip through the cracks so they can get hit, so we can get it on him, get on his table essentially. Yeah, but every kill is the same. It's always them in saran wrap. He methodically, you know, gets rid of the body, etc. So for people, you know, like in Brian's story or with Dahmer, you know, it's one of those things where they likely in their brains found that to be this is their ritual. This is how they are either appeasing their own self or how they're appeasing whatever god. They feel like they're in communication yeah. with, and maybe a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago, they would have had a place in a society where right. they would have been able to act out those impulses, and yeah. it would have been considered a religious rock specialist. stars, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting that you brought up Jeffrey Dahmer because there was a film made about him not maybe ten years ago. Uh, stars Jeremy Renner, Renner uh, when he was still working actor. It was kind of one of his small independent film roles. Yeah, Dahmer. Exactly, just called Dahmer, very simply titled. And um, was Jeremy Renner. It was Jeremy Renner. It was, was Dahmer. Yeah. That's gross. Yeah. Uh, I know. You won't <laughs> think of Hawkeye the same way again. David and I were talking about this. There's there's a, a genre of films, of an exploitation film from the 70s and 80s that was specifically focused on cannibalism. Yeah. Um, it was in the 1980s. A uh, little bit of background. It was um, an Italian uh, movie that was made, directed by uh, Ruggiero Diodato. Uh, and um, what was so fascinating about it was that he actually got his actors to go down to the American rainforest and they interacted with tribes that have known cannibalism within their history to interact with American and Italian actors. So to kind of bring that realism about so much so that when he premiered the movie, everyone thought it was real. And everyone thought that what he was showing them, because the whole movie is based off of a found footage. This and is, this, is this, you said this is Cannibal Holocaust. We're talking Cannibal about? Holocaust. Yeah. Sorry, I, 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 I omitted the name. What a title. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I guess so, it doesn't really leave him much to the imagination, right? You, you kind of know what you I wonder if it's about puppies. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a love movie. <laughs> he it was basically about this film crew that goes down, finds this found footage, and then on the found footage are these horrible acts. And so when, and of course you see these horrible acts through one of the characters' eyes. And so when he premiered it at a film festival, everyone believed it to be a real situation that they actually banned the film and then they charged him with murder. That they, that they had believed that he was legitimately murdering folks on film and, and, and displaying it for everyone to watch. Yeah. And he got himself into a lot of hot water because, because what had happened to sell the whole found footage was that he wrote in a, a contract that his actors and some of the producers had to sign that said, you're not to be in the media for the next year. Oh. Like, you're supposed to be go become a recluse for a while. So when they were, like, questioning him about it, and they said, well, well why aren't your actors, you know, promoting the movie? He's like, uh, oh, 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 darn. Got, so to give the impression that, yes, it is, in fact, real, and those people you saw in the screen were actually are dead. killed. Right, yeah. exactly. Wow. So what saved him, though, is that there's this one really graphic image of, I guess, what this tribe would do is they would do impalings. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's an image in the movie of a woman who is impaled... Uh, you know, pretty graphically. Um, and they said, well, look at this. I mean, this looks very real. Like, can you explain this? And so he had to actually pull set photos of the day that they shot that scene to show that she's sitting on a bicycle seat and she has a piece of balsa wood that she has in her mouth and it's being filmed from a profile. So that is what gives her gives an illusion. The, the illusion. And that's what got him off. Gotcha. Because they were like, oh, okay, so it is... It is fake. Gotcha. So everything you're telling us is, is real. It so was that graphic. It was that It was that accurate. Too, that accurate Ooh. that it fooled an audience and it fooled an entire court system yeah. and banned the movie in several states, uh, yeah. several countries, Italy, Australia, uh, many more. And it's so, un- I mean, and it, it really, was R-rated for a long time in the, uh, America, too, but now it's unrated. Okay, let me, yeah. let me put on my list of movies I'm never going to see. Hold on. Yeah. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Cannibal. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, it's right below Jingle All the Way now. Okay. Good. <laughs> uh Way to bring it back into Christmas. Yeah. So, no, no. <laughs> um, this is really important, too, because I think this movie was also the most successful 
of the cannibal films because of its allure. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure people were like, is it real? I don't know. Let's right. find out. Let's go see it. And probably left absolutely disgusted and right. never saw and another horror movie in their there, life. The article for on Wikipedia that talks about this is extremely well cited and has numerous examples. Oh yeah. To it. It's a really good article. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I would ask anybody to go out and check it out. And actually it's really interesting that they had alternate versions and actually sequels that were, that were made of the movie. Yeah. Unofficial and all. And, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it's funny that you see that cannibalism is in our media. I mean, if you think about it, Silence of the Lambs, you know, right, of course, movie, Hannibal Lecter, right? Hannibal Lecter, you know, Hannibal the Cannibal. But it's funny because they never, you never see it. Right. And you, you, I mean, the only time you really see it is towards the end. And even then, it is not fully shown to you. Right. That you see the aftermath. Sequel, though. But that's no, also Hannibal. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then Hannibal, yeah. they're like, oh, let's just pull the red curtain back and let's just show everything. That movie was all about the psychological torment that the main character was going through and how he kind of played into that. While that was uh, an important plot point, it was never actually depicted. And so right. that kind of shows where you know the U.S. was or is with that topic. Sure. And it's also important, I think, that when you see – because I believe was it Jonathan Demme did the first Sounds of the Lambs and then it was Ridley Scott who did Hannibal, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I believe so. Um, that Demme was more of the art mindset where what's in your imagination is far more terrifying – than what you what you can show on screen, and Ridley Scott's that like that too. Because if you look at Alien, the first Alien movie, you don't really see those creatures that terrify me. Um, but um, <laughs> he does use it a little more enticingly. You don't see the act taking place, but you see you know you see a brain. You yeah. see you know you see. I can keep thinking of the scene with Ray Liotta. That's 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 burning into my retinas for uh, for eternity. I'll say it though: the more that we probably see it in television and read about it on the internet and read accounts of it i think the the less and less likely it is to continue happening in our society I, i'd say obviously it's pretty it's pretty obvious from anyone who, who's alive today that cannibalism and human sacrifice have pretty much been weeded out of society in general of mainstream culture where it's yeah. it's so taboo globally that maybe that's even a re- bigger reason why there's no official laws for it in the united states because it's just so beyond the barometer of what we see is okay. That yeah. and it happens so infrequently. It's just like, well, usually you can just you can get them on other the other parts that involve the cannibalism, which is killing somebody yeah. first. So it, it's it's a very dark topic. I will say it it's it a is. very dark topic. But and if I may, please just kind of wrap things up a little bit. I want to bring it into the light, if that's okay. Take it out Thank of the you. dark for a little bit and bring it into the light. Thank you, because I was going to try to do it somehow and I wasn't sure how. <laughs> I think I got one. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about the sacrificial aspect of it all. Mm-hmm. And I am going to argue to our listeners and to the gentlemen who sit before me at this table that Thanksgiving is an example of animal sacrificial ritual. And here is why. The turkey has taken on such an iconic view in our society, completely separate from other religious beliefs that are out there, but rather just a tradition in our country, a tradition as Americans that this turkey is now bred for the express purpose of ending up on our plates on a particular time of year, and therefore it is, in a way, killed for ritualistic purposes. Just like when we used to go out and hunt and then give thanks to the animal by performing a ritual, I believe Thanksgiving could also constitute that. In fact, in some parts of the United States where hunting is very much a tradition, many people do go out and hunt wild turkey or hunt quail or pheasant or other birds that I think can be grouped into this kind of iconic representation for Thanksgiving. Fishing. These can all be considered to be ritualistic acts, in my view. And I really think that the tradition of Thanksgiving, as far detached as we might be from, you know, ancient traditions of ritual animal sacrifice, I see Thanksgiving as an example of it in the modern world. Sure. I could go go with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Listeners, do you agree? Let us know. Let us know on Facebook. Let us know on Twitter. Do you think that Thanksgiving is an example of animal ritualistic sacrifice and consumption? Absolutely. And what a great way to reach us, because, of course, you can reach me at Brian Moriarty on Twitter. You can reach me at The Brickmont. You can reach me at David C. McGuire. And, of course, generally you can get us at Nerdonomy, right? Follow yes. us on Twitter that way and on our Facebook pages. And, and you can also email us. Yeah, email us. Just drop us a line. We've had so much great <clears throat> listener feedback that we talked about in the beginning of the episode. I'd love to kind of almost make it a regular segment. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be really, really awesome. Um, my name, of course, Brian with a Y at Uh David at Nerdonomy.com. 
and thebrickmont at nerdotomy.com. And if you want to post a question, question to all of us, you can also email us at just thenerds at nerdotomy.com. Well, gentlemen, this has been quite a topic. <laughs> Some first for uh, nerds on history today. Yeah. And uh, it's, been, it's been intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you for being part of our show. We really oh, appreciate thank it. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. Thank You're you always so much. welcome. Yay. Yes. And as always, you well, Brian, you're already there, but you are always welcome on the uh, on the sister podcast as well. I drop in from time to time. You do. <laughs> All right, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>